Hey there, my name is Mike Joseph. I host and produce Detoxicity, which is the podcast that you were just about to listen to. I hope that you have been listening and enjoying uh, for the entire time that we've been doing this. If you are new, welcome. If you are a listener of Longstanding, welcome again and thank you. Um, I appreciate the fact that you listen to this podcast. If you listen and enjoy, please feel free to leave a comment. Please feel free to rate on iTunes or any other podcast platforms that have the ability to rate. And please subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. Also, I would love it. It's not a requirement, but I would love it if you followed me on social media. I am on Twitter at TizMikeJoseph, that is T-I-S-M-I-K-E-J-O-S-E-P-H, and I'm on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy. I don't need to spell that out for anybody. I'm also on TikTok. I'm not on TikTok, but you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. And if you would like to be on the show or you know somebody who'd be a good fit for an interview on the show, feel free to reach out to me via either of those two platforms, or you can drop me an old-fashioned email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Once again, that is detoxpod at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy. Hey, everybody. My guest for this episode is Martin X. Henson. Martin is the executive director of B-Men Foundation. It's a nonprofit that started back in 2018. Uh, this nonprofit organization brings black men together to actively discuss and work through issues that are specific to black men, including but not limited to mental health, healthy masculinity, identity, sexuality, homophobia, and sexual assault. Martin does great work, and I wanted to share it with you all. And we talk about not only the work that he does uh, uplifting the black community, we talk about the challenges that he faces in his work, we talk about the future of activism, we talk about what he does in his downtime, we talk about coming from the South and relocating to Boston, a city that is notoriously not necessarily friendly to black folks, and the differences between Southern racism and Northern racism. So check it out. This is Martin. I get started. Who Martin is, he's an activist, organizer, executive director, pronouns he, him. Just somebody that wants to grow old, feeling like I accomplished all the things that I want to do when I made an impact in my community. So B-Men Foundation is the way that I'm doing that now. Organization of Black men, responding to issues specific to Black men, mobilizing us toward our own support. And we do that through support groups, conferences, different workshops, some COVID-19 relief, a variety of things, because we want to be here and have better long-term outcomes for Black men. That's what I'm trying to do. And that's how I've been able to coalesce it into this package. But I'm just trying to survive, really, if we're being being really real. (laughs) I think that's what we're all trying to do. How did you start getting involved in this work? What was the catalyst for you to get involved in this work? Because this is super important work and it's much needed and there are not enough of us doing it. I mean, there was several catalysts. And so I don't know if it was like really like a true start in any sense of the word, like, you know, something, a spark hit off and I was like a changed person from this point on. It wasn't quite like that. The ground, ground level is really just loss. Like I lost my dad when I was like 12 and all my family, all my people, a black man specifically just surrounded me. And, and I was like, I don't want to lose no more people. That was an idea that's always been in the back of my mind, not losing any more black men. And throughout my life, I've just had different things that I've done. Part of it getting into the the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, doing protests and 
actions and, and things of that nature to form an organization for Black men in response to the issues we deal with. The Me Too movement made me think differently around how men show up and, and what our needs. So there's many fires that kind of sparked up. I lost two friends that was really close to me that were really like my cheerleaders um, in this whole process. Black men, Kahari Charles, the real mix, rest in love. So I've, I've just been moving and I've always had a passion to fire. My, my family were very much community workers, to some degree activists too. So that's a the really roundabout way how I got here. Oh. Little Rock, Arkansas. Little Rock is in the South. I had to get this little, this, this primer because people don't know where Little Rock is. It's <laughs> below the Mason-Dixon line. There are black people in, in Little Rock in the South. Most of us are from the South. So it may not be you that don't know, but I, you'd be surprised how often I have to, to kind of go into that. That's so funny to me because... My family's not from the South. I, my family's from the islands, but most of the Black folks that I knew growing up that were not from the Caribbean were from the South. Like they migrated up North from the mm -hmm. South. So it's funny to me, the idea that there are people out there that don't think that there are Black, that the South is all just rednecks. Like there aren't Black people in the South. It, man, um, that's that's American education for you, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. yeah, I hear that. So, what do you see as issues, particularly that revolve around masculinity, that are specific to Black men in your outreach in your work? What do you see as the most important things that that to try to educate and and work on? You know, you really can come at it from a couple of different ways. One of them is the racialization of masculinity. Uh, so oftentimes when people are talking about masculinity and something being wrong with it, they're talking about black people or people of color. And on the flip side of that is men's understanding in relation to themselves, black men. A lot of it is really informed by historic oppression toward us for being both black and being male. So the way that we relate to maleness is very different. And those constraints that have kept us alive and kept us sane through all of the oppression that we've been through also can make us more likely to not seek help when we need it, whether that be medical help or mental health assistance. So you get caught in this double bind, like the black cool that you have needed to navigate a white world can also take away from your health and well-being. So building spaces for Black men to be themselves in all the ways that the world may not let you be, that's, that became so important to me. And I want to take a second and talk about the concept of Black cool because it's actually never been discussed before by any of my guests. And there really is a... Like you can call it cool, you can call it kind of an impenetrable wall sometimes, you can call it a few different things, but there is this sort of, I don't want to call it laid back, but it is kind of like a wall where you can't really let the world mm -hmm. see who you really are. There's a lack of vulnerability. And mm -hmm. uh, where do you think that comes from? Well, historically, and you may already know this, but black cool or being cool was something that people did to protect themselves to not be seen as hot headed by white folks because it could get you killed. So that 
protective nature and the legacy of having to constrict our emotions, it, it lives in ways that we don't really know. I think it lives in our body in a very particular way, because if we're not taking care of our health and the way that things are, are being experienced for us, then we, we might not be able to be here as long as we should. And also, as it relates to interfacing with systems of people that don't look like us, how do you know when to be vulnerable? How do you know uh, when it's safe? I talk a lot about black men want to feel safe too. You know, we're not just objects of of fear. We're people and we're human and we have to deal with the ways that our humanity is stripped away from us. So the vulnerability can be so complex for people who haven't always been seen as even men. And we have a longer history of being seen as, as beasts or slaves than we mm-hmm. have of actually being seen as, as men. And that's that legacy carries in us in the way that we learn to protect ourselves and, and to navigate that. One thing that really inspired by is the fact that like I grew up in the 80s and early 90s and I grew up in Brooklyn and there was there wasn't room for black men, black and brown men, to be honest, to be soft. Like if you were soft, mm-hmm. you were gay. And mm-hmm. there wasn't uh, a space for people to communicate feelings other than <clears throat> other than anger or frustration or, mm-hmm. you know, just any kind of, of what would be considered softness. And I see that in 2021, 2022, I see that easing up, particularly Mm. as the internet has flourished and social media has flourished in the last 10, 15 years. And I feel like not only has there been more of an acceptance, although we still have a long way to go, more of an acceptance of vulnerability and softness, but there's been uh, more of an acceptance of the fact that these rigid roles are so damaging. The fact that Brothers don't go to the doctor is damaging. The fact that people don't seek help is damaging. Mm-hmm. What do you attribute the groundswell of change in the last 10 to 15 years? Moving more towards softness or moving away from softness? Moving towards softness, moving more towards vulnerability and, and openness. It, it could be a lot of things. I think there's just more voices, just generally. If, if you say in the last 10 years, that you have the kind of advent of, of social media and now the marketplace of ideas is as wide as it can, can be. So you have a million people who feel a million different ways. So rather than having this more uniform perspective, there's this competition for a narrative. And within that, there's different ways that people understand how to be. People who are more soft or let's say men who are gay can find more community in ways that they were not able to do before, or people who, uh, let's say, uh, have alternative ways of being. This is what you know society may label it as, let's say, black anime folks. They can find community in ways that did not exist before. So now, the it's not so narrow in terms of what we know is out there. So I don't know if people have really changed as much, or if it's just that we see a wider lens of who people are and what they can be. And now people are like, oh, you, I can be like this. I can be like that. I can navigate this. Now, they still have the constraints of what it means to be masculine. It means to be male. And you do have the 
the inherent homophobia that that happens. But I think that wider view of what's possible is is what is happening now. Sometimes I feel like getting the people that I grew up with to understand sexuality is such a difficult Mm -hmm. thing because there are these, I think some of it comes from the rigid roles that older folks see as what's real. And and some of it, I think, is Mm -hmm. a very protective, like you can't put yourself out there, that kind of thing. Where do you see that? Where do you see that land? Like, where do you see, like, how do I put this? A path for older people to be a little bit more accepting or people who are just not as open-minded be a bit more accepting of any kind of alternative lifestyle, whether it's you can be into comics, you can be into math, you can be into science, or you can be gay or bisexual or polyamorous or whatever. You can be whatever it is that you want to be. Yeah, I'm going to give you the more politically correct way first, and then I go into how you got to talk to older people sometimes. <laughs> so at, with B-Men Foundations and how we you know, think about support groups, we kind of laid the foundation for when they come to the groups, we, we kind of give a list of, hey, here are the kind of ground rules. We accept everybody, you you black men, if you're straight, queer, trans, you know, whatever your path into black maleness, like we're not going to try to manage it or na- navigate that for you or try to see say one thing's legitimate or one thing's not. No, you, you're a black man. You have these experiences. We're here. That's the ground. That's the beginning. So if somebody can't get jiggy with that, they can always like hop off the Zoom. You know, this is, you know, and it's not really a, a thing. Every once in a while it happens, but it almost it's kind of rare. But old folks, what I tell them, I think about this number, particularly, let's say, as it relates to like uh, LGBTQ or, or, or queer folks or gay. You know, old folks, they, everything's gay. It's not any real <laughs> right, there's split no in between. between the... <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, just knowing that that's how they look at it. Um, not at all, not at all. And it, I be I look at it like this: it's one in ten, one in ten folks, you know, LGBTQ from just some of the numbers. One in twenty, sometimes one in ten. I, so if I'm looking at a room with ten folks, I'm like, come on now, let's somebody in here gay. That's just that's just what statistically I think, I think it's more than one in ten. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe more than I one in ten. I think it's more than one in ten. So and then, yeah. So even that, if it's 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 pretty likely that somebody in your circle does not have the same sort of relationship to the same or opposite sex that you think they do. And if you out here saying wild stuff, then you gonna make it harder for them to live. So we black men, I don't want to make it harder for no another black men by any means. Like, that's just not a thing that makes any sense to me. I want your life to be full and free in whatever ways you can imagine it to be. And the other thing is that is that the people, look, the people who be the loudest, they have got a journey that they own to find their own level of acceptance. So it, it, it may not be necessarily that they're gay. It may be they may feel conflicted around masculinity and feel like they have to be a certain, but it's always something. It's the people who got the most to say you know, they might have their own struggle. That's how I look at it. I don't really come at them that hard, but I just know from just living and, and knowing people and, and having gay friends and the things that they tell me and and having black trans women friends who they tell me, who the people who got the most to say are, are struggling. So I try to look at it like I might be that person who, who has to, con- who can tolerate their ignorance or disrespect enough to 
maybe move them one step over. You know, they may not be at the point where they can respect pronouns, which is not okay. But I might be the person who can actually engage them in a way that doesn't have to make somebody who will be more harmed have to deal with that. Same thing is true for people who are incarcerated and formerly incarcerated. If you don't have that experience, I think it's on you to make it easier for them to walk through so they can be a part of communities. That's how I have to deal. I had to be kind of crude when I deal with folks who ain't, who acting like it ain't what it is. We know, you know, if you go to church, a lot of, a lot of deacons, a lot of pastors, nothing wrong with it, but we know. So let's not try to make less of a space, but figure out how to be more welcoming and accepting. It may not be what you came from or what you thought you came from, but it is what it is, is what I'm saying. Absolutely. That actually leads me to two questions. Uh, I'm trying to figure out which one to ask first. You, in order to do what you do, you have to have a lot of patience and understanding. How do you cultivate that, particularly when you're talking to people for whom it might be a bit more difficult to get the message that you're trying to push? It, It starts with humility. One of the things that I find really important with when I go out and speak and talk to folks I I haven't always had the views I have now and the views I have in the future will change and evolve there, you know, and hopefully they move in a positive direction. And so starting with that, like that acknowledgement, Hey, I had to learn too. I didn't know I moved to Boston like seven years ago. That was probably my introduction to pronouns. I didn't know what it was. And to be honest, when I first heard it, I thought it was stupid. Not saying it is. That's just where (laughs) I was at. And I have to be honest about that. So other people can be honest about where they are as opposed to presenting themselves as if they, they they woke up thinking a certain way about a particular thing. I've had views as it relates to activism that I, I would be ashamed of now, coming from the Bible Belt and some certain respectability politics. There's different ways of moving in different places. But, you know, I've kind of evolved and I'll continue to evolve. So when I go into these conversations with folks, they might not be as far as I am in relation to this particular topic. And I might not be as far as they are in relation to other topics. So rather than thinking about talking down to you, because I'm here and you should be dealing with me, there's an exchange that can happen here. And I'm noticing that where you're lacking, I can support you. And hopefully you have something that can support me. And if you don't, I can still give you what I got. So I kind of use humility as a starting point for those type of dialogues. That's amazing. And you brought up the Bible Belt, and I want to know how religion plays a large part in these views. And I have my own theories about the Bible and slavery and how the word was rewritten or was put in a way to empower slave owners and disempower slaves to accept their Mm -hmm. servitude. That's a whole other topic, but that's something that I think a lot of folks, particularly the further you get down the Mason-Dixon line, still have that very Christian sensibility to them. And I think, Mm -hmm. particularly because we're at a stage in time, in the 21st century, where the religious beliefs are really kind of coming to a head, how do you see that play Mm -hmm. out in, in, in the men that you work with? I don't see it as much with the men. So B-Men has a program called Bridging the Gap where we bring straight black men and trans women of color together to have dialogue and just really talk about our experiences and seeing where we connect and and where we have really strong differences and 
So basically, so bringing folks in community because stigma really is killing both of us if we we being a hundred. Mm-hmm. I one thing that was surprising is that um, knowing a, a few a trans women who have been religious, and I'm like, man, the the church can be so nasty sometimes, and seeing them be able to really hold their faith and navigate it in a way that doesn't feel like there's contradiction for them, or at least they can still get through that. I I try to acknowledge that people can come at it from a variety of ways. It might not be always be mine. I grew up in a church. I still identify as a Christian. I don't know if I'm the same type of Christian. A lot of folks is that that be talking. I'm not sure if I'm that because I don't know. I'm not always sure who they worshiping because, you know, everything don't make sense. And then we have the contradiction of white supremacy and, and Christianity being so intertwined. So when you got to 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 deal with that and talk through it and then the Bible Belt folks, they just know, hey, I'm a pray and. I'm going to listen to my pastor. They're not really on the on that wave where like, hey, let me interpret the Bible. What's this? Is this actually was King James compiling the Bible in a way that was true to the word of God? Or did he actually want to proselytize a particular vision that made it easier to they not there, you know, and what they have as it relates to religion right. is good enough for them. So I'm like, so if you can relate on some. God is love. All right, I can talk to you on that tip. That's where I'm gonna start at with you, in terms of being accepting and and not being judgmental. You just find a lane, you know. And that's you know, religion is just one of them. But when you having conversations with people who are coming from a different space, figuring out what the connecting point is, because it's not always the one that you think. And I felt like, as it relates to black men. And how people treat and advocate against the death of black men at the hands of police. I actually came across a lot of people who didn't even like black men. And and I was like, black folks. But our point of connection was fighting a system of racialized oppression against black people. So like, do I take on that fight in that moment when we're on the front lines and we're planning actions to bring light to this and that? I have to decide. I wish everybody had my same value set, my same approach. It would be easier. Not saying it'd be right, but it'd be easier. But you learn to be collaborative. You learn to be understanding. You learn to be empathic. And you have to continue to grow to to be good at it, to know when the points are that you can actually get in there. I got to ask on on a personal tip, switching gears a little bit, what brought you from Arkansas? What was your journey from Arkansas to Boston? So there's two stories I tell. One of them, they're primarily divided okay. by race. They used to do Uber. <laughs> so period of time I was doing Uber where I was like getting my nonprofit stuff together. And then, you know, I wanted to have that time. So when white folks would ask me, I'll say, hey, I was like, well, I was in school. I had a provisional licensure through psychology at a master's in counseling. And I knew I was going to have to get licensed somewhere. I wanted to move to a big city. Black folks asked me, people of color, Liberal folk. I had to kind of read them out, kind of see you know where they was at on it. Uh, if they were to ask me, I would say that I want to do activism. I've been you know reading and studying like right up until then. I knew the opportunity to move to a different city was was there. I was really big into hidden colors for a period of time. I was reading a lot. I was like, this is just either I'm gonna go do this now. My daughter was young; she was two at the time. She's ten now. I'm gonna do this now, or I'm never gonna do it. 
And I'm always feel like I should have given my contribution to the struggle. And that's what I did. I have a lot of respect for that. Now, I lived in Boston for eight years and Boston has a reputation. It has several reputations, actually. Massachusetts is the bluest state in the country. And Boston also has a reputation as one of the most racist cities in the country. I'm curious what your experience Mm -hmm. has been as a Bostonian. So the way I describe the difference between uh, progressive racism and, and conservative racism, conservative, you know what time it is. You know, this dude probably don't like black folks. You know it, he know it. We're going to be cordial enough to get through this situation and then we're going to move in our separate ways. In the North, they don't really know that they have those types of discriminatory thoughts and feelings. They really believe that they don't. So how it comes out is when you do something wrong. That's when you get a really strong kind of punitive reaction. Like, oh, okay. And then you have to be qualified to be able to engage and deal with them a certain way. So what they'll do is they'll seek out black folks who they feel are good enough, who are worthy of acknowledgement. And they don't quite say that everybody else is terrible, but they'll focus a lot on who they think is really good. And conservatives will focus a lot on who they think is really bad, but it's really the same ideology happening. So to come through and see white people who are really invested in racial justice but their investment was very much related to their feelings of being valued and being able to offer something important to the moment to the point where they can actually get in the way. That white guilt is a monster. It'll eat up everything that you're doing and people will use it both in good and bad ways, but it's out there. I've spent years being like, what is wrong with these folks up here? Y'all do this all the time? This is, <laughs> this is normal? And then Boston has so much money and uh, that plays into the Mm. idea of who can be representative and how and why and speaking the right way and talking the right talk. Because you got to talk the talk out here. You're not articulate. They, you might as well, you know, be, you know, a dumb, you know, black person or something, you know, that's, you can, but it's so subtle, so subtle. Yeah. You got to have the perception to pick up on it. Yeah. In the South, you walk in a room, the room is hot. You already know. Hey, I'm, I feel uncomfortable here. In the North, they turn the heat mm-hmm. up slow. You're like, everybody else walking here? <laughs> nah, I'm good. <laughs> Seem a little hot. So, man, the longer I'm here, the more uncomfortable the oh. feeling here. So, yeah, that's, that's how I go. All right. All right. Mental health is something that's real, real important to me. And as a middle-aged person that didn't really feel comfortable getting help until he was in his 30s. I think some of that is due to maleness. I think a lot of that actually is due to maleness. Some of it is due to resources or lack of resources. And some of it also comes from the whole don't go telling people your problems, that archetype that a lot of us get from way back. What do you do as someone who works in that realm to normalize and promote the fact that we as Black folks really could use mental health help from a professional, not from Jesus necessarily, not from Mm -hmm. our family and friends, because there are things that our family and friends can't be 
impartial about, but from someone who is mm-hmm. going to give you unvarnished real talk and do it from a clinical standpoint. Yeah, the best way to, to advocate for folks that I'm talking to around the utilization of mental health services it, it isn't statistics. It isn't actually introducing them to somebody. What I found in my anecdotal evidence is that if I say I've gone to therapy and it helped me, it goes so much farther than anything else I can say. Maybe because of how I present as a black man, kind of stoic, you know, sincere, thoughtful, whatever you want to call it. But that that's always the thing. People are like, oh, really? What was that like? Oh, you know, sometimes I'd be thinking. Then people open up. If I say therapy is good for black people and hear the numbers of suicide and mental health trauma, people are like, oh, okay, that's cool. But it's just not as relatable because they don't have anybody in front of them who said, I've experienced this and it was okay. It opens up so many beautiful conversations when I just say, yeah, I've gone. And it was, yeah, man, it was dope, man. I was working through this and it helped me understand myself better. And I'm like, oh, there's some, there's another you on the other side of that. I might have to have that conversation a few times, but it, it does so, it's so impactful to just mention that you've been to therapy and you've experienced it. How funny is it? I, funny is probably not the right word. How interesting is it? And this is something you could apply to humanity in general, that people so often need to be shown an example of somebody doing something successfully before they can get into their own head that it's something they need to do. I've learned so much around, whether it be from nonprofits or activism or grassroots organizings, it's the stories that really move people and and telling people around what things were like for you and that vulnerability, you can use it as a tool to be able to access people or allow people to access you. It's different. People got to know that it's it's worked before. They got to know that it's somebody that they can touch has had an experience. Just like some of the COVID vaccination theories that went out and people kind of still kind of hold on to. They all, somebody's like, oh, well, I know somebody who, who had a seizure. I know somebody, whether it's true or not, we don't know. That's part of why they persist in that way. But it's those anecdotes of something impactful happening in relation to something that they're really thinking hard about. That makes a lot of sense. Keep switching around, but going back to the activism for a minute, how much of a long-term result do you think the past couple of years will ultimately have on society? Because I really started getting involved in protesting and stuff after Eric Garner and, and Michael Brown and maybe like seven, eight, nine years ago is when I went from being kind of like a sit inside and be mad at stuff to actually go out and and try to make change. And, you know, I can look, again, as somebody my age, I can look at Black politics, I can look at male politics, I can look at women's politics and, and queer politics and see the change that has been made in the last 30, 35 years. But it really seems to have hit a tipping point. And I'm curious what you see happening in the next five, 10 years. Well, this is probably an unpopular opinion, you know, but as somebody who was in it and seen how it went and seen what folks folks did. And 
I don't think this movement was the wave. I think it's a precursor to another one. And the reason why I say that is because our relationship to people who were victimized by the things that we were talking about was not to elevate them and hear their narratives and stories. It was to see how much the death of of Black people, specifically Black males, can kind of open the door for new leaders. And what I saw is that people were so focused on being perceived as, as leaders that we did not have a particular rubric in this movement about how to move forward for the next generation. And the reason I say that is looking back at the 60s, 70s, 80s, and the, the radical literature that was there, whether it be through journals, or whether it be through art, and even the creation of Black studies that came out of that, and that a lot of people don't know, there was such a strong overlap in different types of fields and studies and because people could clearly identify solutions, let's say if you go back to the 60s and say it was integration, then that goal was to, to integrate and have better outcomes, presumably for black folks. But here, I think the line and what people are moving for is not really that clear. Do we want black people to stop being killed by the police? Do we want them to have fewer interactions with the police? Do we want better outcomes for black men? Do we want more inclusive leadership in society, whether it be a black women or, or queer people or trans folks? If you can't really name it, you know, and this movement, while it was hyper visible, a lot of the things that we have pushed for have already been started to be rolled back. And now we're, we're thinking as a culture, preparing for the next wave of Trump, because we don't think that the things that we created are solid enough to withhold what the wave that he pulled on. So I think in previous movements, I think we can point to some really like clear, uh, solid gains relative to the positions that people were taking. But so much of it was kind of just fluff and and really in powerful rhetoric, but wasn't codified in organizational policy related structures that I'm, I think we are precursor to something else. And I think we thought this was going to be that wave but I think we learned a lot of lessons for the next time. What can we do to galvanize? Well, galvanization and mobilization are not the same as organization. So what we saw was a, a movement in the past six or seven years that could galvanize people and mobilize them to show up to rallies, to donate money, but it didn't always live in, it didn't quite create an organization that could last 10, 20, 30 years. Now, how old is an organization like the NRA? How long have they been around? You know, and we see them as a conservative front and for so long. So what black organization can we look at aside from the NAACP that's going to be here to continue this fight? You know, what organization right. that you've seen within the past six or seven years is going to be here in another six or seven years. I can't think of one. So that might have been different when you saw, maybe say the Panthers, it like, you know, that was before our time, but right before our time, people right. knew how to get involved. They had pamphlets for them to read. They had organizational structures that actually provide a tangible benefit to the people. But show me something that, that's come about in this past six or seven years that does the same thing. And we don't have it. But we have had a lot of great speeches. We have a lot of great marches. I've, I've led a few myself. We've had a good dialogue. And I think that for me, 
pushing people to think around how do you organize for the goals that you have, not just in one year, five years, but 10 year, 20 year, 30 year plan. Because white folks and white supremacy is thinking in decades, 50 years, 20 years, 100 years, you know, for black folks to be successful, we need to at least be able to create either ideological or cultural revolution that can guide the people in a particular way or organizations that can sustain the development of the structures that we need to actually tackle white supremacy. And we don't have either. So I think part of it is just having these conversations and being really honest for me, because I've known this for a while, but it wasn't until this past year that I have said it, you know, so then being able to prepare and pass it forward because it's a constant fight, you know, and, and once people learn how to get the, the basics and I almost put my activist hat on, but knowing, reading the stuff that they wrote, Angela Davis wrote and thinking about the stuff that, Kwame Ture wrote, all of these people who were really good at not just mobilizing, but building organizations, Malcolm would go and leave a mosque wherever he went. Show me where people are doing that here. And I don't see it, but we can get there. We just have to really be grounded in some principles that make sense. That totally makes sense to me. Do you think that the fact that times have changed um, and everything exists in such a virtual world has had a, a difference in that? Or do you think that people are just... One thing I think, and I say this as a very liberal human being, is that people are so splintered that it's hard for people to rally around a specific thing because everybody wants a variation of that specific thing. I'm just thinking that's maybe one of those things that really keeps us from being able to solidly move forward is that every third person has a an asterisk at the end of the plan. You know what I'm saying? Like everybody's got a different tweak on it. Well, coming together to rally people toward a particular goal and objective is one of the points of frustration I've had with this more recent movement. I, I'll talk about it as if it's over because I do feel like that wave is over, that we couldn't really galvanize around a particular objective as the people as a whole, because I think we were trying to do too many things at once, just to give you a quick analysis of it, because there was an interest in introducing new leader, Black feminist uh, thought and ideology, and people were also showing up in response to police brutality and wanting to end it. Now, if you to develop leaders and to have an objective to stop this type of violence, there are two different goals. And to try to put them on top of each other in ways that did not really educate people to why they would benefit from new leadership was a like critical era of this particular moment because it was like, hey, follow us or, or mm. get lost or you're patriarchal or whatever, which if people are, are coming out for one thing and they're being introduced to something else, that it's not actually being bridged well enough for them to actually want to to engage. You just have people coming in and walking away and they're like, ah, they don't really care about us like that. So a little bit of history after the Emancipation Proclamation, the South, once they lost, they, their war became cultural, meaning they held up all these artifacts and, and they kept these codes of conduct that were not quite solidified in law in the same way that slavery was, but kept and maintained the status quo that they were powerful and on top. So in the digital age where you have social media, you have Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of these different systems that can 
gather ideas and bombard you with information that's curated in ways that we don't understand because technology has advanced to a degree where the average person doesn't know what they're being exposed to and doesn't have any real input around directing it in one way or another. The war is still cultural. So all of these ideas, every time that we come up with something that's significant and as it relates to moving us a bit forward, you have all of these different stories and articles and and things that go viral that I'm like, man, I only seen this a few times, you know, and I'm just like the way that white supremacy navigates against us has is so much more advanced. And I don't think that we've acknowledged quite yet that some of these ideas that seem to be coming out of the ether in opposition to the things that we care about may not be as spontaneous as we think. So one example I give is that during the the 2020 George Floyd protest, it was probably the most hostile time that I saw online for black men. People were saying like, hey, let's prevent this black guy from dying in relation to police brutality. And also saying that that black men, particularly straight black men, are, are dangerous and have a kind of hegemonic relationship to other marginal groups. This was happening at the same time. You know, so it was a hard year for me to wake up and watch and see video and audio of this man dying and also hear about black straight men are not valuable. It's the same sentiment that's happening from two different lenses. So if we don't know where these ideas are coming from, we can't control them. We don't have a, a say in the government can't even control Facebook. They do what they want. They, they can't control Twitter. Right. They do what they want. So these, these we're in a different age. And I'm just saying that us talking these things through and passing it forward to the folks that come under us who can actually, they're going to grow up in a different field, on uh, a different understanding that that's really important around pushing it forward. So I don't always put it on our back to get it right. Just like we move it a little bit forward and I'm going to pass to you and you move it a little bit forward and, and we'll get there eventually. Amen to that. Now, first of all, being a black man is stressful. And that's one thing I really wish I could impart to people who are not us, that just existing in the world is stressful. Dealing Mm -hmm. with other people's perceptions of you, dealing with kind of always having to watch your back as you walk through the world. And, you know, Black men develop a variety of illnesses and and stress factors, high blood pressure, strokes, heart attacks, the whole nine yards. You take on a lot of work. So what do you do Mm -hmm. to kind of minimize the stress that gets put on you as a result of the work that you do, which is really a long-winded way of saying, what is your self-care like? Have a piano. I'll sing. Spend time with my daughter. Spend time with my friends. I'll write. I'll I'll talk to my friends. COVID had, surprisingly enough, made me learn the value of relationships because it was just so, so stressful because you had, had COVID and you had George Floyd and you had all the, the kind of things on social media that you would read. Then I was doing the, the activism and then, you know, the Men Foundation and then my regular job and then being away from my dog all the time. So it's like you need community. And what does it take to build community? And I think when I speak around this movement, it wasn't really what we thought it was because it didn't really build community. Mm. It, it kind of set up structures for people to follow. But how many community centers that were came about from that? How many collectives came about from that? Or did they actually respond to the folks who were actually experiencing police brutality? Because I always say most people who are victims of police brutality don't die. They go to jail. So that was a a really 
strange contradiction to actually see. So writing, writing was a big one. Connecting with people was a big one. Being out in nature was a big one because it'll, it'll take you out if you don't take care of yourself. That's right. That's absolutely right. I really appreciate Martin Henson taking the time to come and talk to us. Um, you can find Martin online at martinhspeaks.com. M-A-R-T-I-N-H. S-P-E-A-K-S. And he is also on Instagram. You can follow the B-Men Foundation, B-M-E-N-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N. Once again, thank you, Martin, for taking the time to be on the show. Wishing you all the best, and uh, you know, thank you for doing the work that you do. Hey, y'all. It's me again. Just reminding you to please smash that subscribe button if you want to keep listening to this show. Leave a comment, rate us, whatever you can to push us up in the rankings. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, if you love the podcast, if you would like to be on the podcast, if you know somebody who is interested in being on the podcast or who would be a good fit to talk about masculinity, please feel free to reach out to me via my social media channels. I am on Instagram as DetoxPodGuy, and I am on Twitter at TizMikeJoseph. You can even drop me an email old school style detoxpod at gmail.com. By the way, not hating on anybody who still sends emails. I am old school proudly and I send emails all the time. Uh, Detoxicity is produced and hosted by myself, Mike Joseph. Uh, The music for this podcast was written, composed, and performed by Calvin Williams. The logo for this show was designed by uh, Jacob Block. And I want to give a special shout out to Andrew Grossman and Jeff Giles for the inspiration to create this podcast. Uh, I thank you all for listening and hope that you're all keeping yourselves and each other safe out there. Take care. Peace.